The biblical account of creation talks about God breathing into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Does that breath of life still reside within every human being, or is it something that needs to be restored? This is a mystery we're going to pursue on this episode of Revealing the True Light. There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar, and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. In the biblical account of creation, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. There are many mysteries contained within that statement. And the most important one is this. Is the breath of life still resident within every human being, or is it something that needs to be restored? In order to pursue this, as compared to other religious views, I'm going to start with Hinduism and New Age spirituality, what the beliefs are in those worldviews, and then build toward the biblical point of view. About two years ago, I did a podcast called Pranayama, Higher Consciousness Through Breathing. And then I questioned that concept and compared it to what the Bible has to say. So we're going to pursue something a little similar first by asking, what is pranayama? And how does it compare to the biblical experience of salvation? Pranayama is one of the steps toward enlightenment in yoga and in Hinduism. Pranayama basically means uh, the breathing exercises that you participate in when you do yoga. Prana means life force, and ayama means to extend or to bring out. And so pranayama means to bring out the life force through these breathing exercises. It means to awaken this resident essence of divinity that is taught to be within every human being. Now, the Bible does not teach that, but Hindu doctrine does. Now, in Taoism, this is comparable to something called qi or ki, and that is the life force that permeates everything in the universe. Many yogis call it the breath within the breath or the essence of life within the breath. In other words, it's the divine essence that according to New Age thought, according to Hindu thought, according to Taoist thought, permeates the entire universe. And we have to access that in order to achieve higher states of consciousness according to those worldviews. Some gurus teach that pranayama, or breath work, is more important than the asanas, which are the physical exercises in yoga. And instantly, the word yoga comes from uh, 
Sanskrit word that means yoke, to be yoked with God or with the oversoul. However, their concept of God is much different than the biblical concept of God. God on the highest level is Brahman, which is an impersonal life force, a level of consciousness. You do not pray to Brahman because Brahman will not respond. Brahman is an it, not a person that you have a personal relationship with but a force that you control or manipulate by the right kind of processes or incantations, including pranayama. It is true that people tend to breathe too shallow. And so it's taught in yoga that in order to achieve this state of consciousness, you've got to breathe deep and breathe in a very controlled way. And when you consciously breathe deeper, it lifts you to a healthier state physically and a more illuminated state spiritually. Is that true? Well, not according to biblical teaching. You cannot breathe your way into a relationship with God. You can't do that because it's not that mechanical. It's not that controllable. It happens from the heart, not through a breathing mechanism. So I repeat, that does not bring you to a relationship with the creator of all things. In fact, I have an acrostic, a favorite acrostic. For yoga, you only get air, Y-O-G-A, you only get air. Again, you can't breathe your way into an enlightened state of mind. But many people who claim the Hindu worldview also believe in something called pantheism. And pantheism is the idea, well, it comes from two root words, pan, theos, that means all is God. Pan means all, theos means God. So if you believe in pantheism, then everything that exists is a manifestation of God. It's an emanation of God. The universe is not a creation of God, but an emanation of God. And the God had emanated out of itself all the physical universe so that everything contains a divine essence, including every human being. So that gives a completely different perspective than the biblical one, because the biblical perspective is that God is outside of man and needs to enter into our hearts in order for a covenant communion and relationship to be established. In Hinduism and New Age spirituality, the divine essence is already there. And so you have to find some kind of process to tap into what's already resident within you. Of course, I embrace the biblical worldview now. 50 years ago, or a little over 50 years ago now, I embraced a Hindu worldview. I embraced New Age spirituality. I believed in those doctrines. And then I discovered something quite different when I had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. But now let's go to the biblical view. Let's see it from that perspective. Let me go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 in the King James Version. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, the word translated soul there is the Hebrew word nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H, and that's important 
because there's a difference between the word soul and the word spirit. Spirit is ruach, R-U-A-C-H. When God breathed into Adam, he became a living soul because the ruach, the spirit of God, blended with the soul, the nefesh, and brought life to it. And Adam was filled with the presence of God. Adam was filled with the knowledge of God, the character of God, the nature of God. He was in the image of God. And that all happened through the breath of God. Now, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, it says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now, in the New Testament, you don't have Hebrew as the original language, but Greek. And the Greek word translated soul is suke, and the Greek word translated spirit is pneuma. Again, there's a differentiation between soul and spirit. And it's talking about Adam in the very beginning becoming a living soul. And the word for soul is suke. But the last Adam is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is referred to in that chapter in 1 Corinthians as the, uh, the second man and the last Adam. In other words, Adam brought forth a whole human race that were made uh, according to the image that was passed down to them from the first Adam. But the last Adam introduces a new race. It's a new race of people who have become new creations in Christ Jesus through a wonderful, wonderful process of restoration, being restored to what Adam lost in the very beginning. Because see, God warned Adam in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Well, Adam didn't die until a little less than a thousand years later physically, but he did die spiritually. And I contend that the way death entered into him was first spiritually and progressively it was soulishly, and then ultimately it was physically. Immediately, his spirit died. How did that happen? My belief, and I believe it's substantiated through the Word of God, my belief is that the Spirit of God left Adam, no longer dwelling within him, and so his spirit died. And all his offspring would be born in a state of spiritual death because the spirits of human beings would be separated from the Spirit of God having come under the curse of separation by virtue of what passed down from our forefather, Adam, a death state. And then once a person is born into this world, there's a progression of death-dealing influences that work death into us soulishly. The soul is made up of the mind, the will, and emotions. And so we face negative things in life. We face damaging, hurtful things in life. And over and over again, these things work death-dealing attitudes into us, like depression and fear and, 
and uh, and discouragement and self-condemnation and guilt and all of these things that penetrate our hearts with dark, dark attitudes. And that happens through the way life unfolds. Quite often we face these damaging things. And then ultimately, when we allow sin into our life, the soul that sins, it shall die, but also it has an effect on us physically. And ultimately, the cost of sin is death. We're conceived in iniquity and born in sin. Then we add to that with the sins we commit, and ultimately that causes physical death. So can you see how spiritual death was immediate in Adam, soulish death, was a continuing process throughout his entire life. And then physical death was the ultimate price that was paid for sin. We are all triune beings. Our spirit, though, is very, very dysfunctional. It's not absolute death. If it was absolute death, there would be no desire in any human being to be right with God. There would be no desire for truth or no desire for a better way to live. And so it's what I call biblical hyperbole. Hyperbole is intended exaggeration. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, it says in verse 4 and 5, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So, we were dead in trespasses. We were dead in trespasses. What does that mean? Our spirits were dead. Does it mean absolute death, 100% dead? No. The function of the spirit is threefold. Our spirits offer us communion with God, revelation from God, and conscience. Prior to being born again, the conscience is barely functional, and the other two functions of the spirit are non-functional. No longer do we have communion with God. No longer do we have revelation from God. There's a wall between us and the creator of the universe. The only thing that remains barely functional in our spirits is conscience. Thank God for that. And so we're dead in trespasses. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 it reemphasizes that. So how do we overcome that? How do we get restored from that terrible death state? I think there's a powerful revelation revealed in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. This is right after Jesus rose from the dead. And this is going to pull all of these thoughts together into one in just one moment. Listen to it. Jesus rose from the dead. He appears to his disciples in the upper room, and he says, peace to you. In the Hebrew, that's shalom, which is a normal Hebrew greeting. And shalom means, and this is important, it means peace. It means rest. It means health and wholeness in every part of your being, spirit, soul, and body. It means nothing broken and nothing missing. So for the Lord to say shalom as the first word he speaks when he comes out of the grave and appears to his disciples was his way of saying, I'm going to restore you to a state of non-brokenness. You're not going to be a broken human being anymore. I'm going to bring back to you. I'm going to restore to you what Adam lost in the garden. So he says shalom 
As my Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, the same one that breathed into Adam in the very beginning. And he became a living soul is now breathing on the disciples. Isn't that phenomenal? That's phenomenal because restoration is taking place. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's it. That was the moment when they were restored to what Adam had initially. His spirit was infused with God's spirit, and that's when he became a living soul. When he lost the Holy Spirit, he was deadened spiritually and on his way to death physically. But now the reverse of that process is when you and I are born again. The breath of God is breathed into us. See, God doesn't breathe oxygen and nitrogen and hydrogen. Some people confuse our normal, natural human breath with the breath of God, but the two are totally different and separate from one another and need to be blended together. Yes, but they're separate from one another until the day of salvation. And then when we're born again, as God breathed into the disciples in the upper room, he breathes into us. And the breath of God is powerful in its creativity. And we have one scripture in the Old Testament that says that the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. What an amazing picture I see in my spirit when I think about that passage that God breathed and all the multitude of millions upon millions of angels were created. So if God can create all the host of heaven with the breath of his mouth, he can create a new person inside of you when he breathes his essence, his being back into you at the moment you receive Jesus as Lord of your life. Your sins are washed away by the blood that he shed on the cross, and your spirit is once again infused with the life of God, the breath of life. It's so important to see that in the Greek, there are three different words for life. One is bios, that's spelled B-I-O-S, for instance, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Life in that passage is from the Greek word bios, B-I-O-S, and it means natural life the carnal body, the human body that is alive physically and is tainted with all kinds of evil, negative, and sometimes satanic compulsions. Next, another word is also translated life, suke. That's P-S-U-C-H-E. And that's synonymous with the soul. Suke is translated soul 58 times, but it's translated life 41 times. Jesus said, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall put on. He's talking about human existence or soulish existence, the things that we depend on to fulfill us mentally and emotionally as human beings. 
But then there's another word translated life, and that is zoe, Z-O-E. That means divine life, God life. Jesus said, he that believes on me has everlasting life. And the word is zoe. The word is not bios. The word is not suke. The word is zoe. Because just like we are triune beings, body, soul, and spirit, there's three kinds of life. Physical life, soulish life, and spiritual life. And we don't have spiritual life until God breathes the breath of life into us again at the moment that we are born again. Matthew 7, 14 says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And the Greek word translated life is zoe. So Jesus is saying there's a narrow way that leads to this restoration of divine life, zoe life. You cannot get there through Hinduism. You cannot get there through Taoism. You cannot get there through New Age spirituality because none of those things provide this essence of life that Adam had in the beginning when God breathed into him and he became a living soul. That restoration can only happen through the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and also his ascension and the sending back of the Holy Spirit. No wonder 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 says, he who has the Son, S-O-N, he who has the Son has life, zoe, divine life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's no restoration of that missing part available through any other religion. So what is the breath of life? The breath of life is not physical breath. It's not natural breath. It's not breathing the atmosphere of this air around us. And unfortunately, some Christian songs get it totally wrong. Now, there's some songs I love to sing that are very edifying songs. They're absolutely beautiful worship songs for Christians, and and they've been very popular. However, they're not true doctrinally. And one of them is Reckless Love, a beautiful song by Corey Asbury. But in that song, he said, before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. And then it goes on with the wonderful chorus, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. But wait a second. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me? Well, what is the breath of life? It's the divine essence. It's the divine personality, his character, his personal presence. That did not happen prior to my physical birth. That happened when I was born again. Yes, God did give me breath when I came out of the womb. Naturally, natural breath is different than spiritual breath. Another song Great Are You, Lord. I've sung this hundreds of times. It is an awesome song, and I'm not being critical to those who sing these songs and made them popular. And I believe the singers of Great Are You, Lord are a group called All Sons and Daughters. And it's got a a line or a, a chorus in there that says, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. Well, the breath of God doesn't reside in our lungs. 
natural breath resides in our lungs and feeds our circulatory system with oxygen so that we can live physically. But the breath of God is in our spirits. And so that's not really doctrinally correct, even though it's a beautiful song and a very worshipful one. Another one, Hillsong Worship put out a song that I've wept too many times. Such beautiful, beautiful lyrics that just expand your view of the greatness of God. So Will I is the name of the song. And there's a part of that song that goes, as you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath. Wait a second. Now it's saying that the breath of God, the breath of life from God is in the deer and the cattle and the birds and the insects, the butterflies, etc. A hundred billion creatures catch your breath. No, they receive natural breath, but they did not receive the breath of God. Not all of the creatures in the world have the breath of God. And so, Again, that's not exactly a right approach. But then there's a song by Carrie Job called Breathe on Us that has the right perspective. Breathe on us, holy fire fall. Come and fill this presence with come and fill this place with your presence like a rushing wind. Send your spirit here, breath of heaven, breathe on us. That's a correct biblical perspective. That the breath of God can breathe on us and enliven our souls and quicken our spirits, and connect us with God, but it has nothing to do with natural breath. It may be a similar thing in an analogous way. Our natural breath is an analogous symbol of spiritual breath, but they're not exactly the same. And so I believe by really exploring these things, we can understand a whole lot more of what the breath of life really is. I hope this has been helpful to you, not only in a biblical sense, but a comparative religious sense. Thank you for being a part of this podcast. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.